Welcome back to Peds Ortho. It is August 2021. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Um, we're in the middle of some exciting times down here. We just finished a $300 million renovation of the hospital, and it's beautiful and full of natural light. And we've also got Hurricane Ida bearing down on us, so hopefully it doesn't wash away our shiny new hospital in the next couple days. And I am joined, uh, as usual, by Josh. How's it going? Very good, very good. Fortunately, up here in Iowa, we don't have any hurricanes coming on us. <laughs> um, yes, I'm jealous right now. And uh, we also have a very special guest, Dr. Jennifer Beck from UCLA and uh, the, the Orthopedic Institute for Children in Santa Monica. Did I get it that time? Yep. Santa yes. Monica and downtown LA. Absolutely. Great. <laughs> um, is back on the podcast. We're excited to have her. So welcome. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to join you guys today. Absolutely. So we've got a few recent articles we're hoping to talk through. Uh, but first, let's just get to know Jen a little bit and put her on the spot. I know you sport, specialize in sports medicine. What is your favorite surgery? What's your favorite thing to see on the schedule going into the day? You know, it's interesting. I think um, back when you're training, you always think you really want to focus on this one thing. You're kind of really spending your resident and fellowship training on this. Um, and you never know what's going to come your way. And something that's actually, you know, been a big part of my practice this last uh, seven years is discoid meniscus. And I think it's been something that the evolution of my treatment of it, learning about it through research, um, I think that's something that now continues to challenge me. But I feel like as I'm learning different things, getting a little bit of grasp on. And I feel like each one's just a little bit different. You need to bring different tools, different techniques to each one. Um, and so I feel like it's a little bit of a challenge each time. But I tell my residents, it's, it's plastic surgery of the meniscus. You're trying to shape it, make it look more beautiful, make it function better. Um, but I really enjoy those these days. So would you rather just like a nice stable one that you're saucerizing or you're talking about like the big, nasty, torn, unstable one that you have to like repair with all sorts of different sutures? Yeah, every once in a while, everyone likes just the kind of home run slam dunk case of, okay, I'm going to get a little one, maybe put a little stitch in the back. But I think there's, you know, ones when you really spend some time looking at your MRIs, you realize, you know, that this is something that someone on the outside who's maybe not familiar with them would have just cut the whole thing out. And you feel like, okay, I'm going to give this kid this fighting chance. You know, it may not always look perfect, turn out perfect, but, you know, I think it's one of those things that I really credit a lot of the work and the research that I've done through, you know, POSNA and PRISM and lots of other groups for helping educate me and teach me better techniques. Um, and so I think those challenging ones where you feel like, hey, I really may have actually provided a service for this kid that may have been different from somewhere else. I think that's really gratifying. Great answer. Tough, humbling cases. Absolutely. Um, so in other news, uh, as some listeners may know, you are a POSNA social media ambassador, something we work on together. How did you get so involved in social media? Was this something that just was sort of fun or like an intentional decision you made? You know, it's an interesting story for me is that um, I, you know, had kind of dabbled in social media, but I was asked to help uh, with a social media program through PRISM, which is the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine kind of multidisciplinary group. And they said, hey, Jen, we see that you're kind of on there. You know what's going on. So how about you come chair this committee? 
And it was one of those things, you know, said, great, on for a challenge. And all of a sudden just realized I needed to learn more and more, do a lot more reaching out, making connections. Um, and it was actually through someone asking me to get more involved that I've gotten more involved. And, you know, the last couple of years journey has been great. I've made amazing, amazing colleagues, introductions, gotten involved in so many things. And, and now I think kind of post-COVID where there was a lot of social media going on the last 18 months getting back to some of the in-person meetings of seeing these people and saying, oh my gosh, I've been, you know, we've been retweeting, having conversations, complex case conferences, you know, all these things. And then seeing them in person, you're like, this is just great. This is a little bit of feel of fame almost. Yeah. Yeah. Very timely with COVID. I, I can relate. There's some sort of relationships that uh, are 99% on social media platforms, but feel very important and real. How has it affected your practice being involved in, you know, orthopedic conversations on social media? I think really the biggest thing is from an education standpoint is being able to have, you know, people have conversations, you know, some complex cases, definitely learn some things. And I think, you know, me personally learn things, but then also really reach out to other people of, hey, here's this great study that I found that has really changed my practice. I'm going to bring this out to the world and, you know, be able to tag some of the authors, have some conversations. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is personal education, but then education of, you know, not only orthopedic surgeons, but hopefully other pediatricians nutrition's medical members, you know, even just the lay public, um, I think is the biggest thing that's really um, impacted my career. And what's your favorite platform? I'm mainly a Twitter person. Uh, I think just that's where from an academics, we've, we've really reached out and that's been, you know, short little snippets, able to share publications, share meetings. Um, that's been my main one uh, so far. I'm with you. We're, we're kindred spirits in that aspect. So those of us like like myself who aren't much of uh, social media gurus, where do we start? Like, do you do it mostly independently? Do you have someone in your department who kind of puts you up on a platform and lets you go from there? How, how would I get started? So I think for me, I, you know, how I started is just total, just kind of looker, just saying, okay, here's some interesting things. I'm just going to make a quick comment. Someone's posted something interesting. I'm going to make a little comment on it. And I think just getting comfortable there of just, you know, retweeting other comments and, and other, um, you know, articles or links that may have been posted started there. And then you start seeing kind of a following. You're like, huh, this, these people are kind of interesting. I like what they're posting. And you start finding people that post relevant information to you. And then I think the hardest thing is starting to learn how to connect people of, okay, uh, here's an interesting topic about youth sports and, you know, ACL injury prevention. Oh, I've found a couple of groups that may be really interested in this. So learning to tag, you know, women in sports medicine groups or the stop sports injury group through AOSSM or, you know, whatever it may be. And making those connections is really, I think, what makes all of the, the tweets flourish. And so I think that's kind of the next step that I would say. And then I think the last, you know, and hardest thing is creating your own content because that's obviously time consuming. Um, and once you get familiar with those first couple connections, starting to build your own content, learning how to, you know, if you're going to post a video or if you're going to put in, you know, a link to a paper, um, that's kind of what my progression was. Okay. And, and are you Dr. Jen Beck at twitter.com or are you a division? Are, do, do you represent you or do you represent your department and your division? So I'm solely independent. Uh, it's just me. My opinion's my own. Um, you know, our organization has kind of let us go pretty free. I haven't had significant conversations with our marketing group, but obviously, you know, people always have, you know, that kind of disclaimer of saying, you know, these are my opinions, my thoughts. I don't represent anybody else. Um, but, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty middle of the road. There's some people who really use Twitter as an advocate, advocacy for programs and potentially controversial things. Um, and people can definitely do that. And they probably then get a little bit more, you know, 
of support or need from their organizations if there are slightly more controversial things they may be posting about. Cool. And if anyone out there for some crazy reason still isn't following you on Twitter, what's your handle? My handle is Jennifer J. Beck, MD. So, Look it up. Yep. Lots awesome. of Jennifer Becks out there and, and even in the medical field. So needed that middle initial. Cool. And shameless plug, anyone out there uh, who's listening also, please uh, check out Poslin's content. Follow, follow along with Poslin on Twitter or, you know, Instagram or Facebook or if LinkedIn is your thing, whatever you like. Um, all right. Well, let's get into the content a little bit. So, Jen, you recently published this article in JPO. And it is called What is New in Pediatric Bone Health? Basically, you guys looked at all the recent papers for the last five years that counted in this sort of vague category of bone health. And what I really liked is you broke this huge sort of daunting topic and down into some very simple, concrete things that I can actually remember and use. So I'd like to talk about some of those. For example, obesity causes increased leptin, which degrades your bone health. Or monitoring vitamin D, this is a cool one gives patients some feedback and accountability. So if you test it, it actually helps with their compliance with their vitamin D treatment. Um, and of course, vitamin D is related to all sorts of things, low back pain, spondy, AIS, to name a few. So some questions, what sort of concrete things should we be doing in clinic for bone health? Yeah, you know, I think first of all, I'd love to give a shout out to my POSNA Bone Health Committee members who really put this paper together, made it, you know, did a lot of the research, made it the success. Um, you know, Susan Mahan, Phil Nowicki, uh, Brandon Schreiber, Barb Mankiewicz. It's, it's been a great group. And I think people who are really passionate about this. And I think this is really kind of an evolution of one of those fields of it, it doesn't really have a home. You know, the pediatricians don't really know what to do with it. Orthopedic surgeons, you know, we're busy. We have other priorities, you know, getting into the, some peds, nephrologists will do this. Um, you know, I, I think that my, especially in a post-COVID era, I find this very relevant because I find I spend a lot more time right now talking about this with my patients. And uh, my, my residents may may kind of know that, that I've kind of named it the COVID jellyfish of these kids who sat on their beds in dark rooms <laughs> playing video games for the last 18 months. Then they try to go up and walk or play soccer and they fall down and they get a fracture. Um, and so I feel like, you know, especially right now, this has been such an important topic and I'm spending more and more time talking about it. We were indoors, weren't getting sunlight. Um, and so I'm seeing, you know, a lot of these fragility fractures and just basic falls, you know, in a ditch. And so um, I think right now I, I'm spending a lot of time, especially with my fracture patients, but also even my pre-op patients when I'm thinking about doing bone work. If I've got a, an OCD or a TTO, something that I'm going to do, checking this with these kids. We also know lots of kids have gained a lot of weight this last 18 months, kids and parents and adults, you know. Banana bread was on the top of a lot of people's lists these last 18 months. And so that fact, all the basic science review that we put in there, I think is so great because understanding that obesity has this direct effect on your hormones, has a direct effect on their bone density. And that's something that we really need to, I think, as orthopedic surgeons address as well. And so I've been doing a lot of pre-op checking for any sort of osteotomies to make sure that their bone health is adequate so I can try and prevent any complications in the future. And what do you check exactly? So I do just check their vitamin D and I do check their calcium. Um, admittedly, you know, calcium is, is a lot easier. That's, I think, very rarely actually been thrown off in any of these kids. But I have been genuinely surprised at how low vitamin Ds are in these kids. And, and I think, you know, something that's super controversial also is what, what is normal? I don't think we know. I think that there's a lot of people who have a lot of, you know, um, solid arguments about the lab value possibly needs to be changed because you test these and all these kids are low. 
And I think you meet with pediatricians and orthopedic surgeons and the pediatricians say, hey, 20 is fine. And I would say 20 is absolutely abnormal, especially in a young growing athlete and the needs for their bones and their skeletons. And so I think that's where it's hard. And a lot of it is understanding risk factors, your patient population. You know, for for me, really anything less than 40 these days, I'm recommending some sort of supplementation, whether it's, you know, a a daily multivitamin or, you know, some people are not great at taking pills and remembering and doing, you know, a weekly prescription strength dose. Okay. Wow. So that's a great point that, you know, 20 may be the average, but that doesn't make it okay. So 40 is the goal. That's cool. And the paper had mentioned 30 is sort of uh, something to strive for. So is it fair to say almost everyone getting bony work you're you're checking on beforehand? I have been, you know, I have a, I spent a lot of time just talking about their nutrition and, you know, in Southern California and lots of other places, there's lots of lactose intolerance. There's people who are on a variety of restricted diets, you know, whatever it may be. So I do spend a lot of time just assessing their risk factors. Um, and I do think, you know, 30 is a bare minimum and, and I adamantly do believe that testing it makes compliance better. Um, that's been just an anecdotal experience. We kind of found that also in some of the publications that came out. You know, people kind of think this is a holistic thing. You know, it's not really an MD. It's just, you know, what we're supposed to be talking about. I think they just say, oh, yeah, it's vitamins, no big deal. But it is so important that if I've got someone who's a little on the fence, maybe not understanding, you know, the importance, I do test it. And it absolutely does improve their compliance. That's a great point. I think that may change my practice because I sometimes just start empirically um, with, you know, over-the-counter regular dosing. And uh, But even if someone's pretty low and I start high dose, often I'll then transition after eight weeks to regular dosing. But I'm not often rechecking unless they're undergoing another surgery or having a problem or something. Um, so I think that's really valuable to keep in mind. I think that might uh, change my practice, being able to tell the patient, you know, we're still not there. You got to stick with it. It's a great point. Yeah, yeah that absolutely. was. Oh, I was, I was going to say that was interesting for me to read too. I start all of my scoliosis patients on it without checking. I and I give them the rationale that we could pay a few hundred bucks and check it, or that kind of couple hundred bucks could go to three year supply of of multivitamins from Costco. Since I live in Iowa, where we don't have quite the sunlight that you have, Mayo Clinic's publishing stuff that shows that probably our levels of vitamin D are even lower than other places in the country. So yeah, I guess I would ask, how would you argue and convince me that just starting everyone on it, and then this this paper did show some compliance improvements if patients know that they're low rather than just me telling them that they're probably low. Um, But you think that's an important part of it? I do. You know, I think... um it's interesting, you know, Americans, lots of people, when you start talking about prevention, that's a little bit harder of a a pill to swallow to say than treatment. And that's really what you're talking about is you're saying, okay, you know, we know that there's some associations with vitamin D, scoliosis, back pain outcomes, you know, we're just going to start this, it makes it seem more like it's a preventative thing. And we know that Americans are not great at prevention. Um, but they're better at treatment. If they know that they have that and they say, yep, it's low, they're going to be have that compliance. And I think it's just that mindset going in. While I, I completely agree with you that from a, a healthcare cost, you know, the lab is, is expensive enough and the, the vitamins are, are so inexpensive these days, kind of no matter how you get it, that just the, the value of the lab, you know, versus putting it towards the medicine makes a lot of sense. But I think it's all just the mindset of the patient. And that's where, I, you know, spending that time with them, understanding, are they already on a multivitamin? They buy it into this, they understand the need for it, or are they really resistant and the kids eating French fries and pizza every day? And that's going to be a big change for them. So how do you logistically deal with all these tests? 
you know, are you now spending a lot of time calling patients on the phone to tell them that their vitamin D that you sent them to get after your clinic visit was low? Or are you waiting until they come back? You know, that that's a lot of follow-up. Absolutely. And I think that's something that, you know, primary care, they're used to doing all these follow-up lab calls, x-ray calls, and, and we're not. I think one of the silver linings of COVID that's happened is the improvement in telehealth and just improvement in the connection of the medical record between physicians and their patients. And so a lot more of my patients now are signed up for email communications. And so it's much easier for me now to say, I'm going to get the result. It's going to take a couple days. I'm going to send you a message. Um, just make sure that, you know, a pharmacy is updated if I need to send you something. And so now really any time of the day, I've got a click of a button saying, here, you know, your lab, your vitamin D was low. I'm recommending this. Um, and and it's, that's made it a lot easier, something that's really been a secondary effect of COVID. And what are you starting them on? Like, when are you choosing a multivitamin? When are you just choosing, or I'll I'll just stop there and not put words in your mouth. What are you starting them on? Yeah, I do recommend, you know, a multivitamin and then a secondary amount of, you know, vitamin D. And I think that really depends on uh, some of the risk factors and what their value really is. You know, yes, extreme high doses of vitamin D, you could have some sort of toxic response, but that's remarkably, remarkably rare. So um, I do typically start them, you know, especially the teenagers that I see this majority, you know, the problem in, you know, even upwards of, you know, 5,000 international units a daily dose. Mm-hmm. I also know that they're most likely not going to take it every day. It's hard. I get it. Um, and so I start them on something a bit higher so that that way, if they're at least taking it every other day, hopefully we're going to see that correction. And then really my rechecking of it does depend on how low it is. If it's down in the single digits and I'm looking at eights and tens, which, you know, I've been seeing those, I'll definitely recheck it. If it's something that's more, you know, in the high teens, low twenties, and, and I trust the patient, it's consistent. I can tell they're taking it, um, you know, from them and their parents. Uh, it's something that I may not recheck it. But I typically, you know, understand medication compliance is not high. I want to start them off on something relatively high. And even at that, I've had patients who've had a hard time doing that. And I've uh, adjusted for, you know, doing the prescription strength, um, 50,000 units weekly dose, which seems to have a better compliance from, a, uh, you know, just a weekly remembrance. Gotcha. I've got a challenge for our audience. If anyone has seen an overdose of vitamin D, I would love to hear about it. We are at PEDS ortho podcast at gmail and we would love to feature that on a a future episode i think um so you're starting the osteotomy or the bony surgery patients fracture patients i assume yeah so fracture patients yeah fracture patients you know the um depending on you know how acute it is what their situation um you know especially when it comes to tibial spine fractures and some of these younger kids is that potentially an association um and so some of them you know again risk factor assessment you may not always have the time to to get them truly tested pre-op um and some of them i'll just recommend it as part of their post-op care you know anti-inflammatories tylenol if you know whatever your your pain regimen is and oh here's your vitamin d that you need as well yeah And, and how long do you continue that for you know, depends depends on the fracture and kind of how worried I am about it. You know, younger kids heal a little bit more reliably, um, but I definitely get through at least bony union. You know, my you know fracture patients would be you know at least probably six to twelve weeks, and and if I'm doing you know an elective surgery, the TTOs, the osteotomies, those I'm doing a definitive twelve weeks, and then after that, you know, going down to a lower maintenance dose of just okay, you know, here's some things you could be doing in your lifestyle, but if you're finding that you're just struggling with that, there's no harm in having a maintenance dose once you once you've actually established those patterns. Right. And then uh, there were the obese patients and other demographic features were predictors of poor bone health. Are there other groups that you're you know, are you testing obese kids and starting them routinely? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for my elective, if you've got a you know BMI that's inching mid thirties, even, you know, forties, we're seeing lots of weight gain in kids. Those are the ones that I definitely test because I think they need convincing. People think, you know, they're overnourished and really it's that they're undernourished and consistently all the ones that I've tested have been in the mid teens. Um, and they're also, you know, typically a little bit older patients, at least in my practice, but with some of the younger patients, I think it's education for the family as well, that what they're feeding their child and probably feeding their entire family is not adequate. And so I think that you know, part of my conversation is as well, if your one child is deficient, I bet the rest of the family is too. And you might as well just make it a family habit of taking these supplements. Awesome. So you, you spoke of BMI as a, as a number instead of a percentile. I've always found it interesting, and in the paper you talked about, a study showed 18% of kids are in the 95th percentile. How is that possible? Do we need to re-percentile, or do you use BMI as a number or a percentile, is my question. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my sports sway is I use it a little bit more of, of a number. And I think, um, you know, that's hard because Americans are growing. You know, you're in Iowa, <laughs> even in Los Angeles, you know, mixed demographic. Americans are growing bigger and bigger. And so um, I think it's getting it down to what is actually healthy and normal. And we can't just keep readjusting normal to higher and higher because then 95th percentiles, you know, the normal is going to be 200 pounds for a 10-year-old. And so I think that's where percentiles sometimes could be a little bit tricky because your your 50th percentile is probably higher than it should be anyway. And sports surgeons use it as a score, right? Or points? That you're, how many VMI points did you get? To make it a really strong sports analogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and the more points are not always yeah, the better. Yeah, Four VMI touchdowns. Yeah. How many strokes did you have? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, all that's awesome. I really like the sort of behavioral economics concept of testing vitamin D to improve uh, improve outcomes. The last thing about the paper I wanted to uh, ask you about was uh, the discussion of REDS, R-E-D-S, or relative energy deficiency in sports, which is something I, I think I've just learned about over the last year or so. And I think it's a very important way that we as a community have reframed some old concepts. So I'd love to hear sort of what kind of patients you see and how you address um, relative energy deficiency in sports in your practice. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar, you know, we, we in medical school learn about the female athlete triad. It was always a female athlete problem. Um, and I think that there's been amazing work that's done, you know, Kate Ackerman, when I was in Boston at my fellowship there really kind of had, had been leading the way with her, her groups and, and she's now gotten great grants, millions of dollar grants and, and foundations for looking into some of these things. Um, but I think there was just this perception that it was a female athlete issue and that you really had to see these dramatic findings, stress fractures, complete loss of, of periods. And, and really, I think we're learning that there are much more subtle findings and it, that there's other body systems that really can be affected by this. And so I think the two big transitional points in changing really the name of the terminology from female athlete triad to this red S is that, number one, it's not just females. It's all athletes, males absolutely um, are included in all of this. And secondarily, there can be other signs and symptoms of it, of, you know, there can be cognitive depression, there can be GI effects, slowing constipation, um, there can be immune responses of increased colds, and it's all just down to this baseline energy expenditures that they're doing way too much for what their actual intake is. And for, you know, youth sports, youth sports participation that's been, you know, off the charts, you know, pre-COVID and now people are getting back into it. It's just that concept. It's not these few organ systems that are affected by this, but it's all of the organ systems and it really can affect either gender. To me, the thing that 
never really made sense was having anorexia thrown in there because I, I was a distance runner and there were girls on my team who were just unbelievable athletes, you know, running really, you know, world-class sort of times and distances. And, you know, they were skinny, but they ate a ton. And it didn't make sense to me, this concept that they were anorexic in the traditional sense of the word. And that's, to me, that's why relative energy deficiency is so important because they were eating a lot, but sure, some of them just might not have been eating enough for the amazing athletic uh, feats that they were performing. I, I would completely agree. You know, I was a gymnast growing up. So, you know, there's lots of books and comments about gymnastics and sort of the, the um, cosmetic side of, you know, figure skating and these other, some of these sports and how true anorexia and is, is present where it is a complete lack of eating, but that is a much more psychological involved um, kind of control issue. So I do think that that use and terminology is probably not accurate. Just like you said, is, is, you know, especially with the Olympics that just came out, there's some amazing um, kind of memes and gifts and, and articles that have come out looking at this sheer number of calories, you know, distance swimmers, distance runners that they have to eat in order to keep up with their energy expenditures. So I do think a better terminology is just, you know, that it's an energy expenditure versus intake issue. And it's not this, you know, just complete lack of eating, but it's just insufficient intake of nutrition. Awesome. Um, well, is there anything from that article that any high points that I should have asked about or we should have gone over? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, as with lots of things, you learn that we don't know a lot of things and there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, I think the biggest thing I'd say to the audience is, you know, my experience and sounding like a lot of people, you know, taking care of peed sports is, you know, these kids post COVID, their bones are just not very healthy. And so I would just say, start the conversation. You don't have to be the end all be all organizer of it. Recruit other people, recruit pediatricians, recruit, you know, if you have some non-op sports medicine colleagues, recruit some help, but just start the conversation is really what my biggest plea would be. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, we often discuss some recent uh, case that was particularly interesting on this uh, podcast with our guests. Um, but today, I just sort of wanted to keep it basic. You know, Jen and I had already talked about it a little, but uh, I just had a you know sort of basic ACL this morning. 17-year-old guy, big muscular stud of an athlete, wants to get back to high-level football and sprinting. So plans to put a lot of stress on that knee in the future. You know, a relatively simple ACL has a lot of decision points. So I was hoping we could just sort of talk through that. Um, so he came in pretty stiff. So I sent him to rehab to get things stretched out. Do you also do that sort of prehab or do you think kids are going to get their motion back? It's better to get them in surgery and not let them tear their medial meniscus or something, walk around on a bad ACL. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, optimizing and pre-op, I think, is really important. For a lot of these kids, it's this ultimate shock of, I was fine yesterday, and now I'm not fine. You're telling me I'm going to be out a year. I see what happens. I, I know the lingo from, you know, professional sports. So I think not only is it getting their knee ready, but it's getting them psychologically ready for what's to come. And so unless there's some big flipped bucket handle meniscus, something that's really pushing my hand that I need to operate early. I think waiting the couple weeks for them to get, you know, physically and psychologically ready will, will pay dividends on the back end. And so I really do counsel them. I think whether they need formal physical therapy or doing it on their own is a very personal discussion, um, depending on what resources they have. And also where do they come in? You know, if they're, if you're seeing them seven, 10 days after injury, you get that sense. Is this, is this athlete absolutely fearful of moving their knee or are they seeming willing to try? 
Um, and so I think just gauging where they are, what their resources um, really depends on, on real, how I go working with athletic trainers, working with physical therapists. Um, and every patient, it's a little bit different. But I do think spending those couple weeks, if you've got that time, that luxury um, is absolutely worth it from the back end side. And what's your go-to graft in a you know, 17-year-old football player? Have you jumped on the quad bandwagon? Yeah. So, you know, I think the first thing all my residents will tell you is I say there's, there's, there should be no word as a gold standard graft. I just don't think the literature is out there. I think you have to talk with your patients and see what's going to be best for them because all the graphs have pros and cons. I think, you know, we know from the literature that allograft in kids, that's probably not your, not your fan. That's the first one I kind of throw out. And then, you know, whether you're going to go BTB, quad, hamstring, you know, obviously younger kids, I'm, I'm an IT band um, person, sure. Coker McKaylee from my training in Boston, but I have jumped on the bandwagon of the quads, lotting the quad, which uh, hopefully sometime soon, we're going to be having a comparison of return to sport testing between hamstring, BTBs and quads so that I can get some data out there showing how they're doing on the return to sport testing testing. But uh, anecdotally, my I've been doing them about four years now. Um, I can think of one patient so far that's complained of anterior knee pain afterwards, which is what, you know, in comparison to BTB is the, the real big benefit. Um, right. And, you know, too soon for me to say from my individual practice of what revision rates are, but I can tell you, they sure seem to rehab pretty quickly and they look great. And I'm usually pulling back the reins saying, Hey, yeah. we're, we're not quite there yet. I know you're looking good. We've, we've got to get some, a little more time under our belt, but you know, anecdotally my, my short practice, um, I, I seem to be really happy with them. So hopefully get some data to prove that as well. And so when, when is the return to sports for you? Is this a nine month thing or is this a, are you jumping down the hall on one foot thing or how are you deciding? So I'm really fortunate that I have an amazing physical therapy group who does a formal return to sport test on them. And, and admittedly there there's, it's not the end all be all. If you pass that, it's going to be perfect. There's definitely, you know, other factors that go into it, but I actually use it for two reasons. One, we know it's a long recovery and we know there's a lot of athletes who have kind of a lull at that four or five, six month mark where they're like, over it. They just don't want to be doing it anymore. And so I actually use that as kind of a stimulator to say, okay, we're going to compare you. Let's see how you're doing. Let's see if what your program has been these last couple months is working. Um, and so I use it, you know, at that six month mark, mostly as a motivator to get them back to, to just getting on the rehab train, getting them back working out. And then somewhere, depending on how they do on that around, you know, nine, 10 months, um, if I can, I'd like to retest them as I'm getting them back to their sports. But I do tell most of my athletes it's between a nine to 12 month return, just depending on what their sport and their expectations are. Yeah, I really like that sort of midpoint test to put some data to it and have the conversation. That's great. And is anyone in your practice getting like an ALL or lateral extraarticular tenodesis to uh, to try to you know give a little more support against rotation? Yeah, you know. Um it's interesting. One of the benefits of Twitter is uh, I became, you know, Twitter kind of friends um, with Al Getgood, who's put out his stability study this last year. And anybody who's doing, you know, ACL reconstructions, I do think that that paper is one of those landmark papers in the really group is. that they did. Yeah. It was, you know, amazing randomized controlled trial looking at hamstrings, um, you know, which you can argue that was that was their baseline um, and versus hamstrings with um, an LET and just showing their reduction in, in their revision retear rates. So I think that I, after that has come out, it's gotten a lot of good data. Um, I've been kind of evaluating patients more for it. Uh, for me in a revision setting, I'm doing it almost consistently in revision settings. And then in primaries, you know, I think it's really dependent on what graft I'm going to be using. And then some of those other factors, 
Do they have that? Are they that super hypermobile female that's got 10 degrees of hyperextension? Their Lachman's is out of control. You're just wanting to keep the two bones in the knee, you know, that 3B. Um, really some of those other factors, um, you know, what their compliance is going to be with rehab afterwards. And, and I think the nice thing is, is besides, you know, the scar that they get on the side of their knee and, and wound healing complications, you know, one of the things right now is we don't have a lot of downsides to it. Right. That may come out as we've got more research, but uh, we don't have a lot of downsides to, to adding that on. And uh, since I've been doing it the last kind of year, year and a half, it, it definitely seems to show improvement. So looking forward to more data to come out on, on pros and cons of that. Yeah, exciting stuff. I know there was one paper that showed a little bit harder recovery, and I, I think I've seen that in my practice. Those first few months, I think, have been a little tougher, a little more stiffness. But uh, overall... Yeah, I'm excited about it too. Okay, great. And then, you know, I sort of mentioned before, I want to ask you, but in just sort of in your mind and your years of experience at this point, what are sort of the pitfalls that you've run into and maybe been surprised you've run into with ACLs or things you maybe, you know, warn trainees about that you got to look out for and be able to solve when it comes up? Yeah, I think, you know, um, some of the things is, you know, obviously femoral drilling is the thing that's the the last thing I'm letting my my uh, <laughs> residents and fellows kind of work on because we know that's really the biggest pitfall. And, and from a surgeon-related perspective, that femoral drilling. Um, and so I think making sure that that location, how you're drilling, that's going to be really important, um, making sure that that's spot on. And, you know, I'm, I'm seven years out, and so I'm at that point that I'm seeing my own failures. You know, the first couple years you think, okay, I'm doing pretty good, but my own failures are coming back. And I think you learn a lot from those of, okay, I thought I did that okay, but what what should I have done differently? And so um, having just that self-reflection has been really good. So I think, you know, confirming how you're going to be drilling your femoral tunnel, that location, that's going to be one of the most critically important steps, really more so than a lot of other things. Um, you know, post-op recovery, I think, is something we don't talk a lot about as well and how you manage patients post-oply, you know, especially if there have been meniscus tears or not. That's pretty controversial when you look across the different boards and do people let them weight bear? Do you let them do range of motion? And I think some of those things can really affect their outcome, you know, how much quad atrophy they get because you make them touch down weight bearing. So I think some of those just decision points um, are, are things I'm still learning about. And we spend a lot of time as, you know, we're closing up all the incisions of, of what's the best way to make sure that, you know, a meniscus repair that was done, but getting them back as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's great. For my case this morning, it's, it's always seems like there's one finicky thing today. We've got some, uh, bone chips caught in the flip cutter and couldn't close it and get it out of the knee. I don't know if you've, you've had that one happen before. I don't use the flip cutter a ton, okay. um, but I do know, you know, as with everything, there's things that are super easy, but there's still a thousand ways to mess them up, you know, yeah. especially with menis meniscus fixation systems. And, you know, I've been having drill bits breaking off and going fishing for pieces mm -hmm. of drill bits. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm there. Um, yeah. The best solution we could find was to stick a Kelly in the knee and just force the flip cutter closed and back it out. But, you know, live and learn. Yep. <laughs> All right. Awesome. From here, we're going to move on to the lightning round, which, um, as our regular listeners know, this is where we find some recent articles that uh, ask a pretty straightforward question uh, that we can answer, you know, without really delving into the details and the nuances of the article. And so uh, up first, a recent JPO paper out of Seattle Children's coming out in the September issue next month. It asks the question, do you need to monitor Down syndrome patients for atlantoaxial instability, or can you just screen them once? What do you guys do? Do you so you get a Down syndrome patient, get flex X X-rays probably, make sure there's no gross instability. Then are they good? Or are you seeing them back every year? How do you guys address that right now? 
So right now I'm kind of doing a primary screening and I think a lot of education. Um, I think, you know, the good news is, is that there's been, you know, a lot more kind of acknowledgement of this, what we need to do. And I think, you know, maintaining, you know, healthcare costs as well as keeping kids that are potentially seeing a lot of other physicians for potential other reasons. Um, so um, I usually do an initial screening and then just kind of give them some monitoring symptoms, make sure that the pediatrician knows or whoever's doing their general medical care knows of kind of some concerning things. Um, and then I just follow them that way. Josh, what about you? Are you seeing these patients back a lot? I'm not for routine screening. I, I've always done a kind of a two-phased screening for surgery or other things where if they're real young when they've had it, I always repeat it. And for me, it's somewhere around their age of six or eight in the logic of some of the ossification and more bony development of the cervical spine at that age. But but no, I don't I would don't routinely screen them on an annual basis or anything like that. So I think both of you guys are right on the right track with your management. According to this paper, the authors basically said you don't usually need to rescreen them. This is not something it can sort of progress, but very rarely. So they basically recommended that all the Down syndrome patients, you screen them when they're three years or older, and then you expect about 4% instability. And then after that, you only continue surveillance if they have an osteodontoidium, which gives them a little bit higher risk. But otherwise, you don't need to keep monitoring them on an ongoing basis. So I thought that was a useful paper. All right, next up, JPOB out of Singapore. This paper asked the question, is it better to use cannulated screws than K-wires for talo and triplane fractures? A am I safe to assume everybody on the call uses cannulated screws? Yeah. I, I oftentimes find myself using a combination, um, a cannulated screw, then maybe a K-wire two up the medial mal or, or okay. other locations for more rotational control. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've done that as well. I think that's a nice technique if you don't feel 100% on it after you get the screw in or screws. Um, so the study basically found that either one is a good option. They looked at 49 patients. They found that if you just use pins, you have shorter surgical time. They tended to keep those patients casted for a couple weeks longer, but uh, there were no major problems or differences with between the groups. So, you know, a little reassurance if there's some situation where you find that a, a K-wire makes sense. And how are you guys on taking hardware out if you got a screw that goes right across the, the top of the dome? <laughs> that was going to be my question, too. <laughs> Uh, you know, I usually do. I'd always talk to the patients, tell them the options, tell them about that one paper that says it increases the, the forces and that I don't know what the right answer is. And we usually end up taking it out. Yep. I think our group is, is very similar, uh, have the conversation, but we're pretty consistently taking them out. But I always wonder, you know, that one study, we, we put a lot of hardware in a lot of places that we don't take out routinely. Um, and so the influence of this one paper, I think, is pretty strong. Yeah, and I'm if I have it right across the joint, I certainly probably err towards taking it out. If it's a if it's a talo and I can get an oblique screw up that's not really on top of the joint, I don't take those out. That's a great point. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And the ones that are a little more scaled and mature that you can angle it, absolutely. All right, next up, another one from JPO coming out in next month's in the September twenty twenty one issue from Australia. The authors asked for a spine. When, uh, for an AIS fusion, for example, is the local bone graft enough or do you need to throw some allograft in there? So I guess this one's for Josh. Josh, are you throwing an allograft for your Yeah, AIS almost, almost um, entirely. And I actually get a lot of, I use the bone scalpel and get a lot of autograft, but still typically supplement that. And how much? Uh, it depends on the length, somewhere between 60 and 120 mLs. Yeah. 
I bet so I it's bet a lot. If we had a survey, the variety would just be outrageous if we asked a bunch of people, but I think most people are probably doing the same thing. And they basically said that the autograph tends to be enough. They had over 200 patients. They had two pseudoarthroses. So they determined that less than 1% risk of pseudoarthrosis, which, you know, may or may not have been changed if they had thrown an allograft. So interesting study, needs more research. I think it's interesting. I'm part of the POSNA QSGI sports committee. And so we have a a chairs, you know, call every once in a while. So there is a a QSVI for spine. Um, And I think that that's one of those interesting things is what's, what's the value? What's, what's the cost of that? How many, you know, pseudoarthroses is it reducing? You know, I think that would be a really interesting project to, to take a look at. Yeah, especially because, you know, a lot of people throwing in tons of allograft. It's expensive. Yep. Expensive. Um, all right, next up, JCO, Journal of Children's Orthopedics article out of San Diego. The authors asked, do patients with ankle fractures who get surgery have worse outcomes if they have a syndesmotic injury that needed to be fixed at the time of surgery? Or do they do just as well? You know, assuming that you fix it. And they found that they did just as well. So you don't have to counsel the families that they're going to have any problems or anything if you ended up fixing it. So, you know, maybe we've already beaten this horse to death. But what do you guys use currently for your uh, syndesmotic fixation? You do your stress test? Yeah, I've, I've gone to the, I don't even know what the non-PC way to say, but the, the tightrope. I use a tightrope. I haven't yeah. used the new fancy thing yet. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, you know, for anybody for Academy who did the WLA this year, the longitudinal assessment, is that was several articles talking about how to do syndesmotic fixation. And, you know, initially the concern is, you know, infection rates or failure rates and seems like um, doing the non-screw fixation seems to be uh, people's leanings these days, which, you know, from a sporty side, obviously, I think it's it's nice. You don't have to necessarily worry about a secondary surgery. So, if, you know, we can avoid taking out screws or broken hardware. I think that'd be great for patients. Love it. Carter, you use the new fancy thing, right? I haven't tried it yet, but I I plan to. Yeah. Yeah. From another unnamed device company that's basically, um, I don't know if you've seen this. I I haven't seen it in action, obviously, but been reading about it. Um, But basically, it's like almost like a screw with a a cord in the middle where you advance it into the tibia and then um, tension it with the other part in the fibula. So the advantage is it doesn't go all the way through and put a little button on the other side of the tibia you know, not going to get hung up on soft tissue or nerves or anything over there. Hmm. Interesting. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> Deal. All right. Next up on JPO from last month, also out of San Diego, along with the harm study group. Um, these authors asked when patients have shoulder asymmetry or some coronal imbalance, like if they have two centimeters of trunk shift after posterior spinal fusion for AIS, two years down the road. Is it ever going to get better or is, is the deal done at two years? Um, so what do you think, Josh? I always tell my patients that it's a two years. You can see changes up to two years, but I, I, I don't know, actually. Yeah, I would have thought so, too. But um, they found a good deal of change in the two to five year range. In fact, the vast majority of patients with um, shoulder imbalance improved and two thirds of the ones with coronal imbalance improved. So very reassuring stuff. Yeah, the human enough. body is amazing, and you can keep telling parents not to worry at the two-year mark. Do you do anything early on? So I've started having patients do just some kind of home positional things, looking in the mirror and trying to balance things down if they've still got some un- uninstrumented lumbar spine shift. No, I, I just hope they don't look at it for a while. Yeah, yeah that's the other way. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm going to start testing their vitamin D more. So last up, 
another JPO one, this one's from DuPont. And the authors asked the question, in CP patients with stiff knee gait, what's better, rectus transfer or rectus release? And really, they called it rectus resection instead of release because they were taking out a big chunk of it so it wouldn't scar back down. You guys have a preference or are you guys doing any of these? Josh, you're doing some I have not done any of these, gait. but my brain tells me I think a release is just as good. It, it is. Um, and you know, this isn't the first paper that showed that. And they found both are great options. And they even had a tendency to see a little more crouch gait after the, the transfers. So maybe it's like getting scarred down and holding the knee in flexion. So there may even be a benefit of the release, but I wouldn't say that this paper proved that. That's all I've got, guys. Thank you. Dr. Beck, thank you very much. It's been really oh. good to have you on and yeah. talk about this good study. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I think lots of great stuff. And hopefully all the uh, readers uh, and listeners out there learn some things and, and reach out to us if there's other questions afterwards. Love to start some conversations. Awesome. Everybody uh, follow Dr. Beck on, on Twitter. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Take care.